The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. We call you Savior. And it's true. We have been saved. Not assisted or aided, but saved. Rescued. From our helpless state, apart from you lost, you reached out and saved us. And we bless your name for that. Thank you. Father, in great wisdom and in great power, you sent your Son to save. And I pray this morning that you would send your Spirit in power and in wisdom to move through the room now and to save us again in a different way. Most here, Lord, we have been saved. And I pray that you would continue your work this morning of rescuing us from the abiding effects of our sinful natures. Would you continue your work of making us like your Son? Save us from ourselves again today. Would you use this text towards that end? Lord, if there are some here in this room who have not come into relationship with you, are not saved in the first sense, not saved from the wrath of God, would you use this text to awaken them and to draw them to the one and only great Savior? We're all in different places, Lord. Meet us, I ask you. We, we are dependent on you. Spirit of God, we need you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We need you. We declare it now. We need you. And so come, please. Wipe away all pretense and wipe away all sin. Wipe away blindness, confusion. Make your word clear. Make, make yourself clear to us. And move us to be different different individuals in a different church. And Lord, I pray in particular that this morning you would communicate to your people the depth and breadth of your goodness to us. That there would be something here that would, that would cause us to marvel and that would draw us and convince us of your trustworthiness. Convince us in the end that you are enough. You are that for whom we were made. And draw us, win us to Yourself. For the first time perhaps for some, but again today for the rest of us. Would Christ be honored in that, I ask. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. This morning we give our attention to the last half of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And for several chapters now we've been working through this, this book of 1 Corinthians 
seeing Paul address various questions that were raised for him in a letter from the, from the church. And so beginning in chapter 8, we started to look at a number of different types of angles that Paul's taking to answer one basic question, can we or can we not eat food offered to idols in the temples? He's been after that for several chapters now. He took kind of a long time to get there because he wanted to address various angles, particularly the attitude that was behind all this. But finally, last week we saw in the first part of chapter 10 that he finally gives his answer, no, you can't do that because of what's involved in it. It's when you go into the temple, you participate in the sacrifices of that temple, and so it involves you invariably in idolatry. No, can't. That was last week. Don't be a part of idolatry. Flee from it. That was verse 14. In fact, do not even desire evil. Verse 6. Now we come to the end of chapter 10 and find Paul almost moving on. He essentially has given his answer, but there are a couple of loose ends he wants to tie up. Particularly, something's come to his mind, a a circumstance that they didn't quite ask about, but which is related, and he wants to touch on it because it's going to give him an opportunity to hit his main theme again. In this whole issue, and then really a main issue throughout the whole book, the attitude of of, of self-focus, an attitude of of me-ism, pride. He's going to get at that again through the issue of what about food sacrificed to idols but not eaten in the temples eaten in private homes what about that they didn't ask specifically he's going to address that and in a wonderful manner what we find here and and i I say wonderful i I hope it ends up being wonderful for you it's wonderful for me In, in a wonderful manner what we find here is something of a different feel from last week Last week, if you talk about idolatry, it's not going to be light and fluffy. And when you've got commands of addressing idolatry, there's going to be some directness to it and some some point. And this week, as he steps away from idolatry, I find there to be a different feel to it. And it kind of, as I thought about this week, made my mind kind of think bigger picture. And I think what you'll see here is something that is about your purpose. Kind of in a big picture. What God thinks about for you at the purpose level. And it's a neat thing. The effect of the gospel in giving us direction for life. I'm going to come at that through a particular example here. So let me read the passage this is 1 Corinthians, I'm going to start in verse, chapter 10, start in verse 23 and read through verse 1 of chapter 11 because really it belongs with this section. I'm going to read that and maybe if somebody can deal with this, the light situation, that would be helpful for me. 10.23 All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, you're disposed to go. 
eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10. The passage begins with something very similar to chapter 6, verse 12, referring to a slogan of sorts that the Corinthians kind of held up. All things are lawful. It's a celebration of, of personal right and liberty. All things are lawful. There isn't any biblical prohibition against this or that or the other. Everything's, everything's in bounds for us. We, we, we can do it. There's no, no law against it. Not meaning, of course, absolutely everything. The, the Corinthians knew there was such a thing as sin. So it's not saying that we don't think it's possible to sin. What, what they are emphasizing is, overemphasizing, is a freedom in Christ, which we'll talk about. We can. There's no prohibition. We can. We can. We can. And Paul tempers that immediately. Ah, but is it helpful? Ah, does it build up? And then the command, verse 24, Seek not your own good, but rather seek the good of your neighbor. What's the goal supposed to be? 23 and 24. Not the embracing of absolutely everything you can, uh, everything that's permissible, everything that I like, everything I want, but the thoughtful embracing of that which is both permissible and helpful for the good of those ones. My neighbor. Love not yourself, love your neighbor what he's saying in the beginning like for instance perhaps in the case of meat offered to idols and he launches into this example we're going to have to work through this a little bit to see how this relates to loving your neighbor it will when we come around to the end what he says here though is that when you go to buy meat in the market do so without raising any questions of conscience without, without any question about where it came from from where it came what he's getting at is something that relates to judaism a Jewish person in that day, if, if he or she went to the meat market at all, would have gone there and been very, very careful inquiring about its, its history. Not if it was you know, grain-fed or if there were hormones or whatnot in it, but if it had been offered to an idol. For some of the very same reasons we saw last week. Because if it had been offered to an idol, then the meat is, is contaminated, it's off-limits. So he's saying, what Paul's saying here is, we're not to think like that. For, verse 26, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That, that's actually a quote from Psalm 24, which would have been used as a, a kind of a way to say grace at a meal. And in, a mindset, in one mindset, that would only belong on animals that weren't contaminated. And Paul's saying, because of this fact, there aren't any such things as contaminated animals. 
Every square inch of the planet is God's turf, and everything on God's turf belongs to God, and you can't take anything away from him and give it to an idol. Can't be done. So it's there. It's permissible. Eat it. Buy it. Say thank you. Go home and eat it. In fact, if you're invited to a non-believer's house, same thing applies. Now, a, non, a non-Christian might invite you to come over, and if you're otherwise inclined to go, in other words, there's some sort of a, of a relationship here, and you want to do this, probably a friend, you've got some relationship, go. And don't ask him where it came from. Just say thank you and eat it. Unless, there's an exception, 28, unless your host tells you that this has been offered to a sacrifice. And there are a couple little grammar things here that, that give us a clue as to what's going on. The, the one who informed you there's, it carries a connotation of kind of a, of a subtle, kind of off-to-the-side comment. And because of the language, it, it's pretty clear that it's a non-Christian who's doing the informing. What he's saying to you is probably something like what we might do if, if you hosted a party and you invited someone that you knew was a practicing Jew or a practicing Muslim. You might say, you know, I'm not. But so that you know, this dish right here has pork in it. And this one doesn't. So that you know. I'm, I'm trying to be kind to you and helpful to you. That's what the, the guest, the host might say to you. I'm not bothered by this. We're going to enjoy it. But just so that you know, I know this is going to be a problem for you because you are against idolatry. You think this is idolatry. I don't, but I know you do. And so that you know, this meat right here was sacrificed to an idol. This over here wasn't. If he says that sort of thing, if that comes up, then don't eat it for conscience's sake. And Paul quickly clarifies, not your own conscience. What I, what I said is true. The earth is the Lord. Everything belongs to God. It's, it's fine for you. We're not in a temple, so you're not participating in any worship service of idolatry here. That's not on the table. So you can eat this, not for your conscience, but for his conscience. Don't eat. This is where it gets around to do what's good for your neighbor, love your neighbor. For his conscience, don't eat. Well, why not? Because of what people the world over think when somebody says one thing and then does another. And he thinks, you think that meat offered to an idol is idolatrous, but then, hey, at a party, you're going to eat it anyway. That's hypocrisy. And all of us, the world over, when we see somebody say one thing is good or bad and then act contrary, we think less of them and think less of their message. And we do not want to put any barrier between this non-Christian and the message. We want to create no offense whatsoever. No cause for stumbling, as that word could be translated. So don't eat. You could, but love your neighbor. Think of what he needs, what she needs, and don't eat. Refrain. In fact, if you're eating or drinking there, or eating and drinking at home, wherever you're eating or drinking, in fact, whatever you're doing in all of life, do it all to the glory of God. Putting no offense in front of anybody, any, any Jewish person, any Gentile person, any Christian person. No offense. If you can at all avoid it, just like I do, I do whatever I can, whatever is, 
whatever is within my capabilities to remove all obstacles so that many may be saved. Imitate me like I imitate Christ. That's the passage. Starts out and ends out. Starts and ends with seek not your own advantage. Do not what's just good for you, but what's good for your neighbor. Loving him. Loving her. And illustrates it in the middle with this idea of food eaten that could create some confusion and an obstacle to the gospel. To the glory of God, love your neighbor. Which leads me to the first of two observations that I'm going to make from this passage. Here's my first kind of main point. Seek the good of your neighbor to the glory of God. Seek the good of your neighbor to the glory of God. And I put it as a command because that's how it is in the text. Speaking to Christians here, this this is what is supposed to be the life of a Christian. Commands us of it. So it starts right away, pushing us that way in 23 and 24. We're talking about what's, what's, yes, it's permissible, but think about, and the command, seek. So seek here, and then seek here. Seek that which is helpful, that which builds up, that which is good for your neighbor. And he comes back around to it at the end, as I'm just pointing out. Put no barrier in front, seeking not my own advantage, but that which would help him or her. So he goes, he goes right after that immediately. That's clear. And in fact, if you've been here for a few weeks, you'll realize this has kind of been repeated a few times already. This is a pretty fair summary of, of chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10. Paul said something's very similar to this. Not, oh, Christians, he's, he's talking to the church, not this mindset of what can I do for me? But would you please, oh, please think about other people and seek to lay down your life for their good, for their growth, for their advancement. Please. He said that a bunch of times. Chapter 8, verse 1. Love builds up. Verse 9. Take care that your rights not cause the weak to stumble. Chapter 9, he talked about being a servant of all. He's addressing an attitude an attitude of pride, self-focused, me. And so I need to say a word about that because it's, it's so frequent and it shows up again right here. Not your own advantage. Please don't think of pride as something that is necessarily arrogant in a, in a chest-out, chin-up, sort of manner. Pride simply is thinking of this one first. Looking out for number one, and that's me, first. And pride certainly shows up in in the chest thumper, but it also shows up in gentle and soft-spoken people who talk incessantly about their own deal. Very kindly. Think about that. It's pride both ways. We often don't see it the second way. But it's someone who in every... Men, women, young, old, people do this. We 
we take every situation and that reminds me of something about me. Well, let me tell you. Never thinking about Ephesians 4, 29, I want to be careful to say that which would build up, that would be grace to you. It's Paul's command in Ephesians. That I should be thinking about saying that which builds you up that is God's grace to you rather than what displays my life. That's very subtle, but that's pride just the same. It's everywhere. It's all over us. And Paul's command, his exhortation here again, not yourself, but others. To do good to them, to bless them. And and as you think about it, that could be very broad. What builds up other people can be very broad. But here in this passage, it is focused, it's narrowed. Verse 33, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. If you ask the question of this passage, what is good for my neighbor? What is edifying? What is helpful? We have to have comma, what is good that leads my neighbor to salvation? What is edifying that builds her up towards Christ? That's what's focused on here. What will help my neighbor towards the gospel that he or she may be saved? What would be beneficial to remove obstacles so that he or she can clearly see the message of what God has done in Jesus for people? That's what I need to seek here and then here. That's the context. To seek the good of my neighbor. To seek gospel good for my neighbor. And then he says, Christian, be an imitator of me in this, like I am of Christ. This this is what he expects of us. And notice one other thing. This is what verse 31 is about. Verse 31 So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all the glory of God. That's a famous verse. Which means that most of the time we hear that verse, we hear it pulled out of the context, kind of hanging all by itself. Which, to a degree, is fair, and I'm going to do that probably next week. But it's not in the Bible hanging all by itself. It's in the Bible in this context. So, it's, it's... Completely connected to this larger picture that he's talking about. So, glorify God with your life. Seek out what is good for your neighbor's salvation, building him up, her up. Glorify God with your life. Love your neighbor. Love God. Where do those things fit together? Not just in this passage. Those things fit together really big picture. This is where I, I say I begin to kind of go like this in my thinking. Because what I, what I discover here is that this is the law. The first table of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all of you. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. That's right here in this passage. So what Paul is commanding us 
Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Those are two commands. What he's saying is God means for you to, Christian, walk through life, to live life loving your neighbor to the glory of God. As opposed to loving yourself. So i got a few things that I want to ask you to think about with this. And this is the first, the first thing we need to think about. Yes, there are many ways to glorify God. Many ways to glorify God. We are to glorify God in whatever we do, all through life. But notice this context. He expressly expects us to glorify God by laying down our lives that other people might come to know Christ. It is an evangelism context. So if we find ourselves thinking of, I glorify God, I glorify God, I glorify God, I glorify God, and I try to get around to evangelism sometimes. In other words, we separate those two things. We're doing violence to this text. They are together. It is not possible. Another way to say this, it is not possible to say, I am fully, completely engaged in the glory of God and I have nothing to do with evangelism. Not possible. Not possible. God is glorified as we have minds and hearts and then hands that seek to connect people to Christ. God is glorified because it reflects His heart for them as He loves them. And God is glorified as they come to be worshipers of Him and lift Him up and exalt Him. He's concerned about His glorifying Him here is tied to evangelism. So we can't separate those two things. We have to see that. It tells us something about our mission as a church, our purpose as a church, and your purpose as a Christian. But there's something else that I think is, that I think is neat here. As you think about this, and I, I think I'm going to struggle to express this, so I, I hope I can bring you along. I ask you to think with me. There is something that is very whole and full in this passage about our beings. Let me, let me come at that by talking about the law. Do you conceive of the law of God as rule, regulation, limitation, stricture? Or do you conceive the law of God, and, and the Hebrew word could also mean instruction, the instruction of God as guidance for your good. You should think of it like the latter. The Old Testament does. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. Blessed is the man who puts that law in his mind and in his heart. What God says here is that Christian I have made you and now I command you to walk in 
concern for other people and concern for me. And as you do that, you will find life. That's why God commands that in the Old Testament, to do good to His people, to give them life, not to limit them and and hurt them. And it's the same for us here today. And I talk to people, and I experience a little bit myself too, I I talk to people who are, are constantly kind of trying to figure out what's missing. I mean, I'm in church all the time, and I, and I give a lot of money all the time, and I, and I go to all these Bible studies, and I, but something's not there. And what I, what I want to ask you to think about is glory of God in your life and concern for other people to know God in your life. Are those two elements both present, both balanced, both real and earnest for you. It's what we're made for. It's it's what would fill us. So it's, it's a command and it's also life. It far exceeds any goodness that's that's found in working through a church program, kind of checking off the boxes of attending the meetings, it far exceeds that. Because you find yourself joined to God and joined to what God is about. And what God will be about forever. The interaction with a community of people Encouraging them to become worshipers of God to His glory. It's, it's kind of fundamental to what we are to be. And it's commanded. So, I just ask you, the first observation here is that we are to live seeking the good of our neighbors to the glory of God. Are you about that? There's a great offer of life in it, and there's a command to be obeyed. That's the first point. And the second point gets to something that God has done that's so good that enables us to not just keep the command, that's the first point, but also to find the life that's offered there. So here's the second observation. The gospel frees us former slaves to live as servants. The gospel frees us former slaves to live as servants. Let me unpack this. Now obviously Paul has has some conflict here with, with some of the Corinthians. He's got some places where he's at odds. But he's not at odds in everything. There are some places that he is in agreement with them. Both Paul and the Corinthians realize that there is a real, true freedom that has come to characterize their lives. The lives of all believers. If you're a Christian, there's a real, true freedom. It shows up in 29 and 30 when he's given the example about the meal and he hastens to clarify 
not my conscience. I do have a real liberty. So do you, Corinthians. So do you, church. There is a real liberty that we have. So he says, if I partake in, in thankfulness, if I say, hey, the, this belongs to God, it's on his earth, so pass the pork chop, I'm going to eat it. Thank you. What is there to be accused of? Somebody's going to respond to him quite clearly. Have you not read the law? You can't eat that. It's forbidden. And he's going to point us back. We talked about this extensively when we were in the book of Deuteronomy. He's going to point them back to say, no, food does not commend us to God. Now, there was something going on in the Old Testament with food and, and, and ceremonial ritual cleanness, yes. But that's all changed when the one that that was all pointing to, he has come. There's something new now. We are free from all of the, the limitations of food and clothing and lifestyle. He's talking about that freedom. But we need to think a little bit more deeply about the freedom that's, that's available in Christ. It's a freedom of another sort that's more important, actually. A freedom from bondage, from the enslavement to the power of sin. Think about what happened in the gospel. Assuming that you have trusted Christ, I'm going to assume that I'm, I'm talking to Christians here. Assuming that you have trusted Christ, some incredible change has happened in your being. You are a new creature. Different. You look the same, but you're different. Before, there was a, a power that had a hold of you on the, on the inside, had a hold of you. You, were, you were, had a dead spiritual nature and were locked up in a tight grasp, and you were unwilling to obey God and unable to obey God. So it says the Bible in Romans 8. Unwilling and unable, locked up, bondage, a slave. And then God acted and changed that. God acted to bring you life. God acted to open your eyes. God acted upon spiritually dead people to give spiritual generating life, spirit generating life. And you saw it for what it is. You saw Christ for who He is, the cross for what it is, and you believed. And you were made new, set free. So if you sit there as a Christian you sit there free from the absolute obligation to sin. You sit there free from the absolute obligation to resist God and serve yourself. That's sin. You've been set free from that. Let me try to make this compact here, a little more clear. God acts in a decisive way so that you become a Christian. And what happens is you are free in two ways. Free from the need to live in a way that might, you hope, please God. 
because you already are pleasing to God. And free from the necessity to live serving yourself. From the obligation to yourself. Free to, for instance, serve other people and glorify God. He sets us free to do that. He frees us former slaves to free us to live as servants of other people and servants of Him. Done in the Gospel. To think about the actual inner workings of what God did to change you is fruitful and can lead you to worship. However, we have to ask something. Why don't we live serving other people to the glory of God? If I'm free to do that, why don't I? Because I don't. What's going on there? A third kind of bondage. Which I read about it at some point in the past, and I've never actually done this, so I don't know if this is true or not. But I'll illustrate it like this. If anybody's ever hunted raccoons, they can tell me if this is true. I read about this somewhere in the past, that a raccoon will reach into a trap. How you catch a raccoon? Have you ever heard this story? If it's not true raccoons, you get the idea. Reach into a trap. It will grab something it desires, and then the fist can't come back out of the trap, and it won't let go. Again, I don't know if that's actually true of a raccoon, but that's the bondage that we Christians live under day after day. I reach into the trap, lured there by a promise of something good, and I grab a hold of that, and believing that it is what I need for life, I will not let go of it, and I can't get my hand out anymore, and I'm stuck here. I could, if something were to work on me to incline me to believe that that is not where life is, it's found somewhere else. I could, but I don't because of what I believe. And God graciously acts to overcome that as well. How does He do that? How does He do that? Can you guess? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul says, serve other people and glorify God like I do, like Christ does. Christ serves you to the glory of God. Christ think. Christ the one who has every conceivable right. Set that aside to come down to this place 
to serve you, to set you free, to do anything that He could conceivably do to remove all obstacles so that you could see the goodness of God and could be one to Him and saved. He did that for you. And He does it for you every day. Every day. He pours out upon you, Christian, blessing after blessing after blessing, none of which you in yourself deserve. But He gives it all. And in so doing glorifies God. There is a way that we are one to believe promises. We are one over to believe people. How? How do kids come to believe their parents? Isn't believing a parent built upon day after day, night after night of, of snuggling in bed, of playful times, of joy, of promises made and kept of food on the table every night of a roof over the head constantly so that you just become convinced that dad and mom are for me or sometimes when those things don't happen you become convinced that they aren't for you point stands either way you come to believe someone's trustworthiness by watching them over time deliver you know their character and you see their habits you need to work inside of you to let go of this is to come to believe that when He says, I am enough for you, you see Him as actually enough. Because day after day after day after day you've experienced it and tasted it and seen it. I wrestled with this this morning. I'm reading 1 Peter 2, talking about the living stone Christ, rejected by men, but precious, chosen and precious in God's sight. And I, hung up on the, I got hung up on the word precious. I thought, something there that I don't see right now. I hear that He's precious. I don't know if I believe it right now. What do I need to believe it? Experience the goodness of God. So by faith, I have to come to Him as I did this morning and say, God, show me Your precious nature. Why are You precious? What's precious about You, Jesus? Show me. And He meets me just a little bit. And I pray a little bit more today, a little bit more tomorrow. He meets me a little bit. I I keep reading on in that chapter and I see how... He has work to save me. It's elaborated on in, in that chapter. I experience some of His goodness, some of His blessings in life, and I see this is a good Savior. Precious. But it does not come in a one-shot thing. You don't build trust in anybody in a one-shot thing. It's steady over time. So Christian, I, I, I say, He has acted to enable you to let go of this by showing you himself, but you cannot just look at him once and be fixed. It's day by day by day. You taste and see that the Lord is good today. 
and then tomorrow, and then the next day. He has shown us enough of Himself. He is available to show us enough. Will you go? Will you go to Him? He commands us to live concerned that other people would know Christ and to live concerned that He would be lifted up. And in the Gospel, He has factually broken off the the chains and then has given you enough that you can let go and grab onto Him. Look at it. Go to Him and say, show me. And He will meet you. That's His promise. He will meet you. I don't know if He'll meet you right away. He might say, let's see if if He asks again. Let's see if she asks a third time. But He will meet you. He will show Himself to you. And show Himself good to you. So go to Him. Let me pray towards that now. Pray with me, please. Lord, we need You to show Yourself to us. To win our hearts to You. Incline us to let go of the stuff that we cling to for life. So we come humbly at Your mercy and ask You, would You act you show us the futility of the things that we tend to chase and the goodness of you? Father, there are some of my brothers and sisters here right now who struggle with particular, what we might think of as significant, large issues. I pray, Lord, to turn the dial just a little bit for them, even right now. And give them a glimpse of hope. That there is goodness in you. There is love for them in you. Part the clouds just a little bit and show yourself just a little bit to them. Even at this moment, I ask you. For others of us here who are coming to the Bible cold. Who are praying right now as if there's not anything up there, just a ceiling. Would you stir and enliven and answer? We need your grace in these ways, Lord. So I ask you to move, to build your people, to incline us towards you and towards others for our good and for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801 943 
1-800-242-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.